see now, we have on our team, we have who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. That's what I want to find and out, then, the guy's name. Uh, huh? That's what I want to find out, the guy's name. I'm telling you, who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. Now, Abby, you want to be the manager of the baseball team? Yes. You know the guy's names? Well, I should. Well, you tell me the guy's names on the baseball I team. I say, who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. You ain't saying nothing to me yet. Go ahead and tell me. <laughs> I'm telling him. You said none yet. Go ahead and tell me. Who's on first? What's on second? I don't know. Is on third. You know the guy's I'll... names on the baseball team. Yes. Well, go ahead. Who's on first? Yes. I mean the guy's name. Who? The guy playing first. Who? The guy playing first base. Who? The guy on first base. Who is on first? What are you asking me for? I don't know. Now, wait a minute. I'm, not... I'm asking you who's on first. That's his name. Well, go ahead and tell me. Who? The guy on first. That's it. <laughs> That's his name. Well, you ain't said nothing. I ain't asked you nothing. You did. You know the guy's name on first base? Sure. Well, tell me the guy's name on first base. Who? <laughs> the guy playing first base. Who is on first, Lou? What are you asking me now, for? Don't get excited. I'm saying who. I'm asking you a simple question. Who's on first? Yes. Well, go ahead and tell me. That's it. That's who? <laughs> yeah. I'm asking you, what's the guy's name on first oh, base? Oh, no. What's on second? I'm not asking you who's on second. Who's on first? One base at a time. <laughs> don't mix up my I'm story. not mixing up anybody. Now, what's the guy's name on first base? No, what is on second? I'm not asking you who's on second. Who is on first? I don't know. He's on third. We're not talking. <laughs> And that was a classic, a snippet from Abbott and Costello's routine, Who's on First? And because it goes on for a very long time, I just wanted to play a short snippet. This is Jonathan Tassini, and this is the Working Life Podcast. Now, I thought that clip was appropriate for two reasons. First, thank God, baseball season is here, and I'm already one foot out the door to a few days at spring training just coming up here. And I'm also going to throw in an unusual thing. I'm going to go to the World Baseball Classic Final at Dodger Stadium. And since I live in the neighborhood where this pride runs strong, let me just say when it comes to the World Baseball Classic, let's go Dominican Republic. And then this clip for the second reason is kind of a meditation on both confusion, obfuscation, and double talk. And that's a nicer version of what Republicans in general sound like when it comes to health care. And so it's worth, and I thought that this podcast was worth devoting, just to answer some of the questions about the health care debate and things you might be trying to answer in this debate or simply just a conversation with friends, particularly over what I call the Make America Sick Again, or the hashtag that I use, MASA, M-A-S-A, and that is the Republican repeal bill, the Republican repeal of the Affordable Care Act. Now, the first base point I make whenever I talk about health care, when I'm on TV or other places, is that I'm a single-payer Medicare for all person, period. That's the only home-run solution for health care. Everything else is an error, maybe a single at best, and yes, I am going to beat this baseball analogy into the ground until it dies. But the problem is that Democrats have never had the balls to go out and make the case to the people. Do you want decent health care, in other words, Medicare for all, from cradle to grave, from the time you're born until the time you die? And would you like to kill the greedy insurance companies? Or would you prefer, on the other hand, to continue to be robbed by the so-called free market? And two reasons Democrats don't do this is, first of all, some of them believe in the so-called free market, which has failed us time after time and robbed people in every instance. And a bunch of them, and this is the second reason, a bunch of them, like Cory Booker, for example, get piles of campaign contributions from the drug and insurance industry. Now, I've also said that it's crazy 
that every CEO in America does not stand up and embrace Medicare for all because it would relieve every single business like most advanced countries of the tens, hundreds of billions of dollars in healthcare costs that affect their bottom line. And so really the healthcare bait is one of the stupider ones in America. And there's plenty of ones fighting for that honor. It's really the triumph of politics and ideology over really smart economics. But okay, we're big people, we're adults, we can think with a complicated mind and with contradictions. So the Democrats are pretty united in trashing the Make America Sick Again bill, as I call it. And so listen to this clip. Uh, the first voice you will hear is House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi, followed by Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, and they will be reacting to the release of the Congressional Budget Office analysis of the Make America Sick Again bill, which just happened a couple of days ago. Good afternoon, everyone. Well, the accounting is in. The CBO has reported that the Republican bill pushes 24 million people out of health care off of health coverage. This is a remarkable figure. It speaks so eloquently to the cruelty of the bill that the speaker calls an act of mercy. I don't know if he thinks it's an act of mercy to all the people who will lose coverage, to people who will lose jobs, to the hospitals uh, that may have to close down, especially in rural areas. I don't know if he thinks it's an act of mercy to people on opioid addiction and other addictions who are looking to Medicaid as an answer, as many of Republican governors have spoken to. This is, okay, so they're taking 24 million people, pushing them off their coverage. And as they do so, they are in, uh, implementing the biggest transfer of wealth in our history. $600 billion going from working families to the richest people and corporations in our country. So in terms of, cover, of, in terms of uh, insurance coverage, it's immoral. In terms of, of uh, giving money to the rich at the expense of working families, it is indecent and wrong. Numbers are important. They see the numbers. They should know how that transfers into people's lives. They are finding that out from their constituents. How can they look their constituents in the eye when they say to them, 24 million of you are no longer going to have coverage? And those of you who do have it will have less in terms of coverage at more cost to you. We should know the truth. CBO speaks the truth. They've been speaking the truth for decades. And to try to attack CBO is simply attacking the messenger. Let them address the real issues that CBO reveals. And the reason they don't want to do it is because the report is so devastating. So what I'm going to do now in this podcast is run through kind of a, here's a question and what do you say? Or here's an argument and what do you say? And maybe that'll help some people on some of the key issues. So the first thing is, what do you say when you hear Republicans say premiums continue to go up under the Affordable Care Act and it's too expensive? Well, part of the answer is, well, yes. Premiums did go up, and part of the reason I argue for single-payer Medicare for All is premiums went up because health insurance companies were essentially making a killing, and they continued to raise premiums. But those premiums went up less 
than what was estimated by the Congressional Budget Office at the time the bill passed. And if you you may remember, in the good old so-called free market before the Affordable Care Act, those premium increases were even bigger and larger. And I know this myself, by the way. I've bought my own health insurance most of the time for the last 25 years. And part of the reason premiums were going up is because the pool was not big enough. Now, why was the pool not big enough of people getting into health care plans? Because actually the penalty for people not coming into the system was too low. And Obama dropped the ball on that. So lots of people, particularly younger health people, said, hey, to hell with it. I'll pay that penalty. So the penalty needed to be at least equal to the lowest average plan. And again, this is why we should want single-payer Medicare for all, because in that system, there are no penalties. Everybody is in the system the very moment they're born until the day they die. A point two you're going to hear is that Republicans, by repealing the Affordable Care Act, will save the country $337 billion over 10 years. Whoopee! So let's break that down a little bit. The main way they're going to do that is by eviscerating and destroying Medicaid. And they're going to do that in two ways. Under the Affordable Care Act, the federal government said, we will pay 100% for Medicaid recipients and we're going to include money to expand Medicaid to all 50 states, any state that wants to accept the Medicaid expansion. What the Make America Sick Again bill does is, number one, it freezes the Medicaid expansion at 2020, and I'm going to talk about that some more in a second. And it says the federal government is only going to pay 90%, and the rest the states are going to have to come up with after 2020. And so understand how Medicaid support is figured. Under the Affordable Care Act, the federal government said that they would pay 100% for those people at what's known as 138% of poverty. Now, this is an important issue. Do you know how poverty, the poverty level, is figured? It's figured by a number that the federal government comes up with, the same way that they come up with a consumer price index. And I have argued for a long time that those numbers are phony. And what I mean by phony, they don't really reflect what it costs people to actually make ends meet. And so I'll give you an example. A family of four under the federal poverty guidelines of 2016 at 133% of poverty, that's roughly what the ACA federal government would cover, right? Remember, it was 138. But at 133% of poverty, the federal government guidelines define that number as annual income for a family of four of $32,319. But just think about that, the cost of living and how much it actually really costs for rent, for gas in your car, for food. That level for a family of four at 133%, even if it was $10,000 higher, people would still be in poverty. So already we're talking about a number that really doesn't reflect the true poverty levels and the struggles people have to make ends meet. The second point to make about those so-called savings is that's $337 billion, which sounds like a big number over 10 years. But consider this. Obama's last federal budget, 
the last one he created that was passed by Congress, is almost $4 trillion. That's for one year. Our economy, the gross domestic product currently today, is over $18 trillion. So if you just divide up that $337 billion savings, let's just average it out over 10 years and call it $33 billion in the first fiscal year, it's peanuts. It's nothing compared to the idea that millions of people will be without health insurance, millions of people will get sicker, millions of people will be forced probably into bankruptcy. The Republicans are essentially trying to save peanuts, and in return, they are going to basically leave people without health care. We already know how many from the CBO report, 24 million. But think of this in a concrete idea compared to the chintzy cost that they say they're going to save. And part of the reason they're doing this is it's ideology. It has nothing to do with actually saving money. It's all about Republicans hating Medicare, hating Medicaid, hating the idea that government should provide health care as a right to people. This is an ideological position. This is political. It's not about the economics. Point number three to remember, this is Robin Hood in reverse. It's right out of the Republican playbook of giving massive tax breaks to the rich at the expense of everyone else. The Make America Sick Again, the repeal of the Affordable Care Act, would give a total tax cut of about $274 billion dollars for people making $200,000 and up. This is a huge transfer of wealth to the very rich. And so if you have to explain how that robbery is happening, the way the Affordable Care Act was financed in a big part was to get the riches to pay up because that's what we do in a rational, smart society. And here was what the financing did. It put a 3.8% tax on investment income. And the only people who think about investment income are the richest people who have already made out like bandits. Now, those people would have to pay a little bit more. And in addition, the highest income earners would see a 0.9%, that's less than 1%, tax hike on Medicare. And as you'll hear from my guests in a few moments, that would push off the insolvency of Medicare for a lot more years. Another point, going back to Medicaid, you remember I mentioned just a minute or two ago that under the Make America Sick Again Act, after 2020, the federal government will only cover 90%. Well, there's another rub in there. That is going to be figured at 2016 healthcare prices, healthcare prices of today, which we know is rubbish since those costs climb at double digits each year. So each year, the money available from the feds will go down in actual spending per enrollee. And that will essentially, over time, continue to bankrupt and stress the Medicaid system and push millions of people out of the system. Now, the other thing we usually don't know about Medicaid is that there's a huge churn in Medicaid. And what I mean by that is only about 20% of the population today in Medicaid will be there in five years. And so in 2020, this Republican pile of crap, this Make America Sick Again bill, freezes the Medicaid expansion. So put simply, 
The roles are going to shrink in many of the states, particularly Republican-run states where eligibility rules to get into Medicaid are very harsh, because it will be left then to the states to define who gets entry into Medicaid. I'm going to come back to a few more points, but first I want to bring in someone who really knows his stuff. Uh, David Sertner is the Legislative Council and Policy Director for Government Policies for the AARP, which I'm sure many of my listeners know represents older Americans, represents in this case 38 million Americans. And David's been with the AARP since 1982. So he's really been in the thick of the fights over health care funding for over three decades. And David, you've been around this area for a very long time, working on health care, in particular in Washington. And before we dive into the numbers and the concerns that AARP raised about the bill, one of the things that struck me, and I'm curious whether it also struck you, was the Republican attempts to undermine the Congressional Budget Office from the get-go, way in advance of the report coming out, which came out Monday. And I'm just curious whether you found that in particular both surprising, startling, and unusual? Well, I think what was particularly unusual was the fact that they actually went to markup in the committees without even having the numbers from the Congressional Budget Office. In previous big health care debates, uh, the CBO numbers were huge drivers of actually the structures of the bills themselves, and there were lots of back and forth with CBO and the bill writers uh, to make sure that they met whatever numbers they needed to meet before the bills went to markup, because it's hard to go through a committee process without really knowing what the impact was. So the fact that somebody is beating up on CBO may not be as unusual as that they actually tried to move this thing initially uh, through the committee without even having the CBO numbers. And in fact, in a clip that we played earlier in the podcast, Chuck Schumer at a press conference mentioned that when the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, came before Congress, to your point, before it was even voted on, when it went to markup, the CBO numbers were there uh, for just, you know, justification and background. Right. It's important to have those numbers because, um, and of course, CBO is not always right, but they are the, the, basically the congressional scorekeeper, not just for these bills, but for every bill. Uh, and everybody has to play by a set of rules, and those are the rules that, that people will normally play by uh, because they are an impartial uh, group that really does try to do its best to uh, give some direction as to where the numbers are going. So it's hard to make judgments unless you know impacts on things like coverage and premiums and uh, impacts on the uh, you know federal deficit. And those are all things that are done through these reports. And so in the letter that AARP sent to Congress, and I urge my listeners to go to aarp.org to read the full text of the letter, I was struck by several things. And one thing that you wrote about in opposing the bill, and by the way, I call the bill Make America Sick Again, or MASA is the hashtag, you point out that the ACA did a pretty terrific thing for Medicare Part A trust fund. And the Medicare Part A, again, for my listeners, covers hospitals, nursing facilities, some health, uh, home health visits, hospice care, and it really um, helped the solvency of the Medicare trust, the Part A trust fund, all the way to 2028, which by revoking and repealing particularly the 0.9% Medicare tax on high-income workers, that would reverse that help to the solvency of the Medicare trust fund. Is that correct? 
Right. So there were a number of improvements in the the ACA that helped uh, slow down some of the overpayments, for example, uh, that Medicare was making to uh, insurance companies and some other providers. So that helped save Medicare money. And then there was this additional funding stream uh, to Medicare to help make Medicare stronger. So the combination of that pushed out the solvency of the Medicare Part A trust fund by over 10 years. Mm -hmm. And this bill would repeal uh, basically that new funding stream, uh, and that would basically over the next 10 years uh, deprive Medicare of of, uh, over $100 billion uh, of funding going in. So that would, again, hurt the Medicare trust fund and move up the insolvency date by several years. And let's underscore the fact that this was a really, really small tax on the highest income earners in the country. This wasn't coming on middle class or even obviously not poor people, but it was all on high income earners who could certainly afford what is a relatively small amount, as you point out, over 10 years. And I always like to compare that to a budget which is almost $4 trillion if you look at the last Obama budget, which is 2016, and a, a GDP of almost $18, $19 trillion. This is so such a small amount of money, but does so much in terms of protecting seniors and people who rely on Medicare. Right. So this only affected people with uh, wages of over $250,000 a year, right. uh, a 0.9% tax. Now, the other thing that really blew me away in your letter to Congress were the premium changes. And I just want to focus on one uh, statistic. You wrote, uh, your organization, the AARP, wrote that a 64-year-old earning $15,000, that's a pretty small amount of money, would see their premium increase by more than $5,800 a year. That's an increase of their premium of more than a third of their income, of their total income. That just is astonishing to me. Well, unfortunately, it was astonishing to us as well. And there's really two things going on here, both of which contribute to this dramatic increase. One is that under the current law and under the Affordable Care Act, there was a limit put on how much more insurance companies can charge older people. And that limit was put at three to one. Now, at three to one, you're already paying a fair amount more for insurance. Uh, could be, you know, 15000 versus 5000 So already you're paying pretty hefty amounts for insurance. But this bill would repeal that 3-to-1 uh, limit and allow it to be 5-to-1. So in other words, insurance companies could charge older people five times more. And so that would drive up the cost of the premiums uh, for all older persons. But that's only half the equation here. What also happened is that there are tax credits in the bill to help people to... Uh, in current law, there's tax credits to help people afford their health care. And what this bill does is dramatically reduce those tax credits for older people. And so what we have is a combination, a double whammy, of the premiums going up substantially and the tax credits to help you purchase health insurance going down substantially. And so you end up with these huge premium increases uh, for people over the age of 50. And perversely, it works that the older you get, Uh, the bigger the premium hike, and the lower your income goes, the bigger the premium hike. And so we have these substantial premium increases. And quite frankly, our number actually pales to the number that the CBO just talked about uh, yesterday in their report, where they specifically estimated that a 64-year-old with an income of $26,500 
pays a premium today of $1,700, and under the new bill, their premium would soar by almost $13,000 to $14,600. So their premium would go from $1,700 a year to $14,600 a year, and that's for somebody earning $26,000. And I just I just don't understand how anybody, if you now take it into the normal conversation, this is really about bankrupting millions of people or forcing them not to have health care and therefore making them sicker and essentially killing people. Well, that's been our concern. There's no question that the, how the math works here uh, and that older and, and more uh, lower income Americans in particular are going to see dramatic spikes in their premiums. Uh, you know, $5,000 or more per year. These are clearly unaffordable amounts, uh, and it's either going to force people to, you know, give up other aspects of their life that they can barely afford or, quite frankly, drive many of them to the ranks of the uninsured. And, of course, we, we know the devastation uh, that that could cause people, uh, particularly at that age group. Yeah, it kind of reminds me when we were debating, a number of us were opposed to the Deficit Reduction Commission. We used to call it the Cat Food Commission because it would drive people to have to rely on cat food if the cuts were imposed that these deficit mongers wanted. And it strikes me that what I call the Make America Sick Again is similar to that. It would force people, as you point out, to go without real needs, including real food. Yeah, these are pretty big dollar amounts we're talking about. If we're talking about amounts that are you know, five to thousand dollars up to you know thirteen thousand dollars more a year. It's just, it's obviously not affordable. And I'm glad I think that this issue is at least beginning to break through. And I think, um, and hopefully, the CBO numbers will help uh, reinforce what we've now been saying for the last several weeks uh, to really drive this point home that this is a big deal uh, for older uh, workers and older voters. So let me move now to the last probably big category, although I want to ask you a philosophical question at the end, but, and that has to do with Medicaid. You know, people typically think of older Americans, you know, people over 64, they think of people in terms of Medicare. But I think one of the things that you guys really point out really effectively in that letter is that millions of people who are Medicaid, of those millions of people, 10.8 million are so poor or disabled that they qualify for both Medicare and Medicaid. They're double qualifiers, if I can use that term. That may not be accurate in terms of the actual language, but they qualify for both. And this bill, the Make America Sick Again, just shreds Medicaid over time, both in terms of freezing eligibility and then the amount of money available, especially when the 100% federal funding stops in 2020. So that would hit millions of the people you represent particularly hard. Right, and this issue uh, probably hasn't gotten as much attention. Uh, these, the folks we're talking about are so-called uh, dual eligible, so eligible for both Medicare and Medicaid. You're right. It's uh, been it's and, been and, under it's been under discussed, and I think you guys really highlighted quite well. And the issue here, in particular, is you know these are these are generally people who are benefiting from these programs, and you know we're also talking about there are about 17 million. Uh, disabled children and adults, as, as well as poor seniors who rely on, you know, Medicaid for their, you know, nursing home and long-term uh, care and supports in the community. Uh, these are among the most vulnerable of our populations and clearly rely on Medicaid as a program of last resort. And what's also not been discussed very much is the changes that are being made to this Medicare program have nothing to do with the Affordable Care Act. Uh, for These are folks who've had coverage 
since the beginning of this program over 50 years ago, and we're going back and putting caps on the kind of coverage that these vulnerable people count on, and the numbers, again, out of CBO are pretty uh, stunning. The Medicaid program is cut by a total of eight, $880 billion. Wow. So by almost a 25% reduction in 10 years. And, of course, that money is now being pushed back to the states. The states have been very clear in saying that they can't possibly afford that kind of a cost shift. It would be a dramatic cost shift to them and to state taxpayers. Um, and if the states can't afford it, it just means we're going to have substantial cuts uh, in, in the budget and in the services that are being supplied to the folks who really are relying on Medicaid as a program of last resort, uh, including, as you note, you know, millions of uh, poor seniors and disabled adults. And, and philosophically, and I'm going to make a, a political observation here, uh, two-thirds of the legislatures are now controlled by Republicans, and Republicans have philosophically oppose Medicare and Medicaid in general. So if you've got a Republican governor and a Republican legislature, it's not just that they're going to say, well, taxpayers can't afford it. They are philosophically opposed to the whole notion of Medicaid and Medicare. So they're going to be, you know, they're not going to be inclined to make up that amount, and they're going to make the eligibility even tougher at the state level. Well, from, and many of the governors uh, on the Republican side have come to Washington to say, don't make these cuts. We don't want these people to lose benefits and services. We can't afford it at the state level. Uh, so those who are out there on both the Democratic and the Republican side, both back in the state, mm. they know firsthand the devastation that this would cause. And they're basically coming to Washington saying, don't do this. Don't force these decisions on the state level because they're just going to force major cuts in services, major cuts in the type of coverage that we can provide. Uh, and that's why you're seeing some of the big numbers, I think, you know, today in the headlines uh, as a result of these CBO scores. And I believe that's a good point. Um, there are several what they call moderate Republicans in the Senate. Uh, I think Rob Porton from Ohio is one who are making that argument. And they were opposed to the bill or saying they were opposed to the particular Medicaid uh, cuts even before the CBO report came out. And many of them were reflecting uh, some of their own Republican governors. Uh, Portman, Ohio is one, and Mr. Kasich uh, has been very strong on this. We, uh, the governors in uh, several other states, including Nevada, Michigan, Arkansas, have all said they have real problems with the House bill because of these dramatic cuts to the Medicaid program and the loss of services and the you know, increases in the number of uninsured that are, are quite high and I think really quite shocking to, to most. But I would also note, um, you know, this bill also gives away money. Uh, it gives a $25 billion tax break back to the drug industry. And certainly we have problems with that, particularly when one of the biggest things we hear about from our members, indeed from many Americans, is about the high price of prescription drugs. Yep. Uh, and we've been hearing that for years. And Rather than take the opportunity in this bill to do something to help lower the outrageous cost of prescription drugs, this bill actually gives $25 billion back to the prescription drug industry. So that's part of the problem with this bill is it's giving away money uh, to some in the industry while not dealing with some of the problems for real people. And because the prescription drug industry needs so much more money on top of their billions of profits they already make off of people, huh? 
Exactly. So you mentioned before, and you kind of gave me a lead into this, that the change in the ratio from three to one to five to one, which would make have, make people pay higher premiums, it made me think, uh, particularly around this area, that frankly, this healthcare debate has been crazy for going back to Hillary Care for a quarter of a century, and that is, we need single payer Medicare for all. Healthcare. If we just gave everybody Medicare, and I lived in Australia where they had a Medicare for all system, we would eliminate these huge transfers of wealth to the insurance companies. And I'm just curious what your philosophical view is about that, having seen this whole debate for uh, a number of years. Well, of course, we've had this debate on and off now for several decades, as you as you mentioned. And, and certainly, what I can say is that uh, Medicare is clearly. Uh, among the most efficient, if not the most efficient, healthcare system that we have in this country. We spend very little uh, on administrative costs. Uh, it's obviously not a for-profit entity, so we're not having to have uh, extra money going to Medicare for profits. And so the system is able to deliver healthcare in a much more efficient and much more cost-effective way. And so it has been a very successful program over the years, and I think it has served uh, seniors quite well. Uh, and quite frankly, the Medicaid program is much more efficient right now in delivering health care costs as well. And so those two programs, you know, we think, are actually you know, part of the solution. They're not part of the problem for health care. Uh, and the problem with this bill is that it really is cutting back on the ability of both of those programs to deliver effective health care. And it strikes me that the problem then, therefore, of not going to Medicare for all, which would help actually businesses too, because they wouldn't have to pay billions in healthcare costs. It's not really about economics. About it's about politics and ideology. Because on the economics, as you point out, Medicare is probably one of the best, most efficient programs we've ever had in this country's history. And you're right; these questions really do go back to more of a philosophical and ideological, and, and quite frankly, in our case, historical. Uh, now, because we have so many people who get their care through employer-provided coverage that even as we went through the Affordable Care Act debate, I think there was a recognition we didn't want to, you know, upset the, the basically the way people got their coverage today. We wanted to make sure that we can do a better job of getting uh, more and cheaper coverage to more people. Uh, and I think that, in, in part, was done by the Affordable Care Act. Uh, we know just for that 50 to 64-year-old population we were talking about uh, that the number of people who didn't have insurance dropped in half. Uh, since the ACA. So that clearly has brought great benefits to older Americans. And our fear, of course, now is that uh, this law, this repeal proposal will completely erase all those gains of the last uh, several years. So that was an amazing interview. Thanks to David for that. And just to wrap up, let's go through a few more points that you might get asked. And so the next one would be, you might remember that the ignoramus in the White House promised that everyone would be covered. Remember that? Well, actually, that's obviously not true. The Congressional Budget Office, as we know, in the last couple of days said that 24 million people would lose their health insurance over the next period of time. 
And actually, that shouldn't have been a surprise because the Congressional Budget Office looked at a similar plan to the Make America Sick Again plan. And they looked at it back in January and they said back then that the number of uninsured would increase by 18 million. And then after the stop of the expansion of the Medicaid eligibility and the elimination of the subsidies, that number would increase by up to 27 million and then to 32 million by 2026. So those numbers, even back in January, were known to the ignoramus in the White House, and they still tried to claim that the health care plan they were pushing through was going to do wonders and cover everybody. Now, this should not surprise people from a White House that believes in alternative facts and the fact that you're being spied on through your microwave. Okay, so now there are some things that these jerks can't change. They're going to have to leave in the coverage for pre-existing conditions. They're going to have to leave in the coverage of adult children up to age 26. They're going to have to leave in the cap of, for out-of-pocket expenditures. They're going to have to leave in the fact that there won't be lifetime or annual limits on your coverage. And they're going to have to leave in, at least for the time being, and I'll explain this in a second, the 10 essential benefits that the Affordable Care Act laid out that each plan has to include. Now, here's why this is important to remember, why those things are going to be left in for now, but are in danger down the road. The Republicans are trying to pass the Make America Sick Again as a budget bill. And there are restrictions in the United States Senate of what you can do in a budget bill. You cannot, in a budget bill, first of all, have something that's not germane to the budget. It's completely off the wall. And you can't have something in the budget bill that increases substantially the deficit. And these two provisions were all covered under something called the Bird Rule. And in order for the Bird Rule not to be in effect, someone has to raise a point of order. And that point of order needs 60 votes to be waived. So what I mean by that is if the Democrats have spine and they, the Republicans, try to slip through something that's not germane to the budget, a Democrat can stand up and say, this is not germane to the budget or increases the budget deficit, and therefore I raise a point of order here. And if the Democrats stick together, and that's always a big question, the Republicans would need 60 votes to pass a waiver of that particular point and to override the point of order. You got to remember, and I think you do, that the Republicans only have 52 votes in the Senate. So they would need at least eight Democratic votes to get that particular provision through. And all those things that I just read to you, the coverage of the pre-existing conditions, the ability to cover adult children up to age 26, all those are not direct budget items. And that kind of leads to the final point of this discussion. Is this damn thing going to pass or is it going to just collapse? It looks like, you know, as I speak to you today, it's not going to pass for lots of reasons. First of all, it'll probably die in the Senate, largely for two reasons. And it's a little bit of inside congressional baseball. There's that word again, baseball. Had to throw that in near the end. First, some Republicans, the right-wing ones, the really right-wing ones, the crazy ones like Rand Paul, think that this is, get this, too generous. 
and that they should repeal everything in the Affordable Care Act. They think that the Make America Sick Again is too generous and is spending too much federal money to protect millions of people. So that's one reason. And the second reason it might not pass is because of what I just discussed, the Byrd Rule. Now, that is a slim read to hold our hope on, no doubt about it. And so the final two points I'll make on this, one reason that there is some hesitancy on the part of a few Republicans about shoving this through is because of the mass rallies that have taken place, the town halls where people have poured in and really screamed and yelled at particularly Republican members of Congress. Many of those rallies, much of that opposition was generated and led by Bernie Sanders and a few other people, but it was really inspired by Bernie Sanders and thanks to him as usual. And the second point we're now should be left with is that all this mess we're in, where we're fighting over an Affordable Care Act that did cover millions of people, but left millions of people uncovered, versus a Make America Sick Again bill, which repeals the Affordable Care Act and is a huge transfer of wealth into the hands of the wealthy and will make millions of people sicker and some of them will die. It's all because we have not fought for single-payer Medicare for all. So the lesson we have to take away from this fight is that we have to have our focus, our attention, and our energy directed to getting people to understand why single-payer Medicare for all is the only solution to health care. Health care as a right, get rid of the insurance companies, and make America really healthy again and give people a sense that they have power, that they have a right to health care, that insurance companies should not screw them. Yes, it's now time for our Robert Barron segment. And this week, I'm anointing Travis Kalanick, who is the CEO and founder of Uber. And just for the record, I don't even have the Uber app, and I don't have the Lyft app, and I will never have that app until those two companies are unionized. At least in New York City, where there are plenty of taxis, unionized taxi drivers, there's no reason to use Uber and Lyft. And I've only taken a ride in an Uber car, I think, two or three times because a friend summoned an Uber and I was along for the ride. But I will never use that app until those companies are unionized. So I happen to catch that there's a unionizing effort in Seattle, a unionizing effort to try to bring Uber drivers into the Teamsters. And that isn't an easy unionizing effort, I'm going to be frank, because Uber drivers are considered under the law independent contractors. And I have some familiarity with independent contracting organizing, having tried to organize independent contractor riders into a union. So those Uber drivers are independent contractors. And under labor law, federal labor law, only actual employees can have a union or at least bargain under the collective bargaining rights given employees under the National Labor Relations Act. 
But that doesn't mean you can't organize people, organize workers into a union that will represent people using the leverage workers have, and in particular, in this case, drivers. And in Seattle, the Seattle City Council passed an ordinance in 2015, which gives the drivers the right to vote to organize. And that would affect about 10,000 Uber drivers. Now, just to show you the threat that this organizing effort has, the Chamber of Commerce and the Anti-Union National Right to Work Committee have filed lawsuits against this ordinance, in fact, claiming that only federal law can set the standards for organizing into a union. But let's get down to the brass tacks here. This is a company that has a $68 billion valuation in the stock market. And even though it has a ton of money, what it forces Uber drivers to do is take expenses like fuel, vehicle maintenance, and insurance on themselves. And what they get in return is obviously some customers that Uber sends them their way through the app. But still, that's a huge burden on the individual drivers. And that's why they've tried to pull together this organization, this union under the Teamsters, to try to get some leverage to get better working conditions. And Uber is using the standard anti-union playbook. They're trying to intimidate drivers. Before a driver can accept a ride on the Uber app each day, they have to choose whether to listen to these podcasts that the company is pushing out, which basically tells them about the dangers of unionizing, collective bargaining, and all that other garbage. By contrast... Not only is the company worth $68 billion, but Travis, that be the guy Kalanick, the CEO, his net worth now is about $6 billion. Let me say that again. The founder of Uber is worth $6 billion, and he is fighting all the unionization efforts to try to get individual drivers a fair deal where not all those costs are heaped on them and they can barely make ends meet. So this week, our robber baron is Travis Kalanick, the CEO of Uber. And that'll do it for our podcast this week. I want to thank my guest, David Sertner of the AARP, our amazing audio editor, as usual, is David Hebden. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast at workinglife.org. And when you go there at the podcast tab, please do consider making a contribution and becoming a financial sponsor of the podcast so we can continue to deliver to you the kind of news and awesome information that we try to bring here in the podcast. We'll see you next week.